These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life through his name. Scripture says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we starts our study of God's Word this morning. Let's bow our heads and ask God's, God's direction for us today. Our Father, we're th- so thankful for all of the things that you have provided for us in terms of our spiritual life. This is truly a distinct and unique dispensation, this church age, because we have not only been given your word in terms of a completed canon of Scripture, completed Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, but that we have given, been given your Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us with your word, that he, the one who was responsible for the breathing out of your word, the inspiration of your word, he is the one who guided and directed the apostles and prophets in the writing of the scripture and father that he is the one who then enables us to understand your word to store it in our minds and memory so that we he can recall it to our minds for application so father now as we continue to study how you have provided certain skills for us skills that enable us to face the challenges and adversities of life We pray that we might have taken all of these things to heart and that we might come to understand how this joy that is ours, that has been given to us by Christ, is part of that spiritual skill package to enable us to face the challenges of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I do not think I am moving. We have snap, crackle, and pop in our sound system. It started Thursday night. So we need to get rid of the Rice Krispies in the sound system. So we'll just have to uh, make it it through here. It's nothing I'm doing. I can move and touch everything, nothing. Hmm? Yeah, okay. So what we're doing tonight, or this morning rather, as we're studying this, is bringing to a conclusion that which we have been studying since January. I started there because in our study of Ephesians chapter 4, we were uh, approaching a section of Ephesians 4, starting with about verse 25 down through Ephesians 5.18, where there's a series of approximately uh, 25 imperative mood verbs. Now, an imperative mood verb means that God is telling us exactly how we are to live our lives. These are mandates for us. 
and they describe these characteristics of what we studied in the previous paragraph that we who are who have trusted in Christ as our savior have been baptized by means of the holy spirit we have been identified with his death burial and resurrection so that we become new creatures in Christ we are identified in Ephesians 4 as a new man we are part of that new entity that starting in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 15, or actually to the end of, of that chapter, there are four different metaphors used to describe who we are as believers in this church age. We are, a, we are the body of Christ. We are a new man. We are a new building, and we are a new temple. That relates to the corporate body of Christ of which we are all members. And so since we are members of this new man, this new entity, there is a code of conduct for us just as there is for any any family. Now, I've heard some people say that over the years that this sounds like legalism. Actually, that's a false concept of legalism. Legalism isn't the idea that God tells you to do certain things and not to do certain things. Uh, legalism is the idea that that is the basis for our salvation or that that is the basis in some way for causing God to bless us. God's blessing comes to us because we are in the body of Christ and because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, uh, that we are not trying to earn God's grace or earn God's favor but that because he has always already done everything necessary for our salvation and brought us into the royal family, brought us into the body of Christ, that we are to live in a way that honors him and glorifies him in gratitude for what he has done for us. And so as part of what God has provided for us, uh, we ha- I have sort of summarized these in terms of 10 spiritual skills. And then just about any commandment that you find in Scripture fits into one of these 10 categories. And so I have found this to be a very helpful, uh, useful way to synthesize uh, the Christian life and and a very practical way to help us understand how to face and deal with whatever problems we might face in life. And so we started off, and I've got this chart rather than going back to the uh, Soul Fortress chart, which we'll probably review next time, that we begin with confession of sin. And we do this because according to Galatians 5, 16 and following, that if we are not walking by the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, which is the command of Galatians 5, 16, which is the second category, then we're walking according to our sin nature. When we're walking according to our sin nature, we're not walking with the Lord. We're walking in uh, contrast to the Lord. That's described in Romans 8. And the result of that is that nothing that we do in as we are walking according to our sin nature has eternal value or contributes to our spiritual growth or glorifies God. So to recover, we have to confess sin. And God in his grace instantly forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from any other sins that we've committed that we're either ignoring or we're unaware of our sins. And he just wipes the slate clean. We are cleansed and we can then as a result walk by 
God the Holy Spirit. And when he does that, he fills us. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. He fills us with something. He fills us with God's Word as we study it. So we are filled by the Spirit as we walk by the Spirit. And then the next three categories are all related to one another in a very close way because they're all focused on God's Word. We have to learn God's Word. 1 Peter 2.2 says that uh, like a newborn baby, we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the Word that we may grow by it. It is the Word of God that the Spirit of God uses to mature the child of God. And Jesus prayed this same thing in his what is called his high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, 17 where he prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth, Thy word is truth. It is the word of God that is instrumental. That is what changes us, and that's what changes uh, any culture as a result of the change that it brings about in people. But we have to learn it, we have to know it, we have to apply it, and we have to use it, and we have to claim those promises. So that's the first part, the faith rest drill, where we claim these promises that God gives us in his word, and we trust in him. And as we claim those promises and we use those promises to form many of our prayers, then we begin to grow. And in one way in which we grow is as we learn about God's grace. We are to be oriented to the grace of God. We align our thinking to the grace of God, which doesn't just mean we understand that we're saved by grace and not by works but that we are to deal with one another on the basis of grace and kindness and gentleness, not losing our temper and screaming at people, not uh, using certain gestures with people who cut you off on the freeway. All of those kinds of very practical applications. We have to be gracious and kind to those who do not deserve it because you and I didn't deserve God's grace. And so we are to treat people in that manner. And so that's grace orientation, and that handles a lot of problems. People get angry with us. People treat us in ways that we find unacceptable. Uh, Rather than letting that um, become internalized and we get angry and bitter and hateful and all kinds of other things, that we respond in grace and we put them in the hands of the Lord. Doctrinal orientation means we align our thinking to what Scripture says to the principles and the procedures that are laid out in the Word of God. We have to be people of the book, and the book needs to be internalized. We need to make plans to read our Bible through once a year. It's always amazing when you talk to people and ask them if they're reading their Bible that that very few people in this country even read their Bible once a week. And yet we should be reading it and internalizing it every day. Well, people say, well, there's parts in there that I don't understand. My response is so. There are parts in there I don't understand. There were parts, a lot of parts in there I didn't understand 40 years ago, but I understand a lot of them now. But I wouldn't have understood them if I hadn't spent the last 40 years reading through the Scripture again and again and again, and sooner or later the Holy Spirit turns the light on and we're able to move through it. But if you don't read it, you won't get it. And you may not get it for the first hundred times. 
But it's like learning anything else. You've got to go through it a hundred times before you can get to that hundred and first time when you get that aha moment. So we have to know the Word and internalize the Word. And as we do that, we learn more about who we are in Christ, and we have a getting sense of our personal sense of, etern- of our eternal destiny. We come to understand that God has a plan and purpose for each and every individual. We, are, we play an important role in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about that role and that every member is significant to the health of the whole. And that's not just talking about a local church. That's talking about the body of Christ on the whole. So we have a destiny, and that means that we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. After the rapture, we will uh, be evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ, and different rewards will be distributed or not, as the case may be for some who are saved but they never decided to walk with the Holy Spirit. They never decided to learn the Word. So they will be left in a position of shame and embarrassment at the judgment seat of Christ. And then as we mature, we've already laid the groundwork for these in grace orientation. We learn to love God. We learn to love one another. And we learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we Learn to love Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't get any of this until you're mature, because this is a dynamic process of growth. This is just laying it out in sort of a, a logical uh, logical progression, but that's not how it is in, in life as we learn, learn to live. And as we learn to love God, we realize that Scripture says again and again, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, Jesus said it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we understand that that is the the metric for for uh, understanding our love for God. It's not, oh, I love Jesus and he just makes me feel so good. That has nothing to do with it. God isn't concerned with how we feel about him. God is concerned is how we positively respond to what he tells us to do, to think, how to think. And we have to learn to think biblically. And the really sad thing is that in America, we now live in a culture that doesn't know how to think biblically anymore. Uh, It has eroded over the last 100 to 150 years. Uh, There is an organization, a worldview institute at the Arizona Christian University where George Barnett uh, heads it up. George Barnett is a well-known evangelical um, pollster for the last 40 years, I think at least, very highly respected both by both within the Christian community and outside the Christian Christian community and a poll that was released or their study that was released back in February said that during the COVID pandemic the number of pe- people in America that hold to a consistent biblical world view was cut in half between nine, uh, early 2020 in 2023, it went from 3% to 1.5%. 3%. I would suggest that 150 years ago, the, number, the percentage of Americans that held to a consistent biblical worldview was probably closer to 50%. Liberal theology had already made many inroads by the 1850s. 
So that, that consistent worldview, and there are nine points in his worldview, and you can look those up on the Internet, and they're very, they're very sound. So we, we have this focus on loving the Lord, personal love for God. Our uh, personal love for God is then expressed in loving our neighbors ourselves, which involves loving unbelievers, and then loving one another, and then our occupation with Christ, that is living each day for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is very important because where we're coming in this last section is to understand what the Bible teaches about joy, inner happiness, and tranquility of the soul and how we use what God has given us in terms of what the Scripture teaches under the category of joy as a way to handle difficulties in life so that we're not overwhelmed by the adversities that come, whether they're problems with health, problems with family members, problems with uh, co-workers, problems dealing with just the problems that may come with whatever career we have, that we can have real joy and contentment no matter how difficult or challenging things may be. But there are some issues that we have to discuss on this because it is there's some things that are difficult for us to understand. So what we're looking at uh, this morning is what the Bible teaches about joy or what some call inner happiness or sharing Christ's joy because he gave us his joy. So this is a joy that is um, to be understood not as emotion, but it has an emotional element that may be present. So let's break it down, look at Scripture point by point. First point is that the, this final spiritual skill is referred to by some as just joy, others as inner happiness, some as sharing the happiness of God. Our focus on this is not everything there is to say about what the Bible teaches about joy, but how we use that as a spiritual skill. What is that aspect? And this relates to joy primarily as a mental attitude. Thus, it is often defined as having tranquility, contentment, and inner soul stability, where we are not having this sort of ebullient uh, emotional lift uh, all the time, but, but no matter what is going on, we can uh, have a relaxed mental attitude and we can face the challenges of life because our faith is grounded on the solid rock, on God our rock, and he is the one who is stable. So we look at this not as an emotion, because emotion varies. It's not personality, because some people are much more upbeat and other people are a little more quiet and reserved. Some are uh, exalt over every little thing in life. Other people don't say much about it. They're rather quiet or shy or reserved. None of that has to do with whether you have uh, are experiencing the joy of the Lord in terms of how you think. So it is primarily not an emotion. It is a mental attitude that is grounded on the Word of God and what God has provided for us. And my second point... I just want to summarize this. I could have taken time to go through a variety of different words that are used in both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament for, that relate to joy. 
but that would uh, sort of miss our main point here. But these words that are used in both the Old and New Testament express the idea of joy or inner happiness, the tranquility of the believer, or being blessed by God. The words for blessing indicate that God has positively uh, uh, given us uh, good circumstances. But sometimes, even when we don't have good circumstances, we should consider ourselves blessed because we have eternal life. We have been made alive together in Christ. We have been raised together with him and seated together with him in the heavenlies. That's who we are. That's our ultimate identity, not whatever is going on right now in this particular plane. So the focus is on that which is related to the spiritual life of the church age. It's different from the way it was in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, believers were not indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. So in this sense, in this church age, the joy of the church age believer, the Christian, is a supernatural product of God the Holy Spirit. As a result of the individual believer's spiritual growth, which is called walking by means of the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. This joy is not something we can generate on our own, just as I taught about love. It's not something we can, we can gen up on our own effort. It's something that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit as we learn the Word of God and apply the Word of God as we walk by the Spirit. So we have passages such as Romans fourteen seventeen, where Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy by means of the Holy Spirit. So righteousness and peace and joy are by means of the Holy Spirit. They're not generated by our own nature. Then we have in the next chapter of Romans, Romans fifteen thirteen, Paul writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So it is God who fills us with joy and peace. Peace is related to joy in that it is a tranquility and a calmness of the soul in the midst of difficult circumstances. So, uh, it, righteousness and peace and joy are produced by the Holy Spirit. And in verse thir- in Romans fifteen thirteen, there he says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. And then in Galatians 5, 6, 5, 16, we have the command to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Walking is a common metaphor in Scripture for how a person conducts their life, how they think, how they act, how they talk. The walk by means of the Spirit relates to how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. So the command is that we are to walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. I've taught this many times. People get confused. How can I then sin if I'm walking by the Spirit? Because you stop walking by the Spirit. You take your eyes off the Lord, just as Peter's walking on the water, and he sees the waves out of the corner of his eyes and takes his eyes off the Lord and puts them on the waves, and he goes down. That's, the, that's what uh, Paul is describing here. 
The result of walking by the Spirit is then described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 as the fruit. Notice, it's singular. It's one fruit. But that fruit has different characteristics. And so these are the characteristics that are listed. Love, joy, peace are the first three. And we've talked about that. See, it's the Spirit who produces this kind of love. Jesus said by by this, that is, your love for one another will all men know that you are my disciples. It's not something you can produce out of your own efforts. It's something that the Holy Spirit produces as you take in the Word of God, study the Word of God, internalize, assimilate, apply the Word of God in every aspect of your life. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Then in the third point, we need to look at what some of the central passages are. Joy is mentioned in numerous places, but I have picked uh, four passages that I think are significant for us. The first is what we studied last time as we looked up at our focus on Jesus Christ, living for the Lord and uh, having our focus upon the Lord, looking unto Jesus. The word for looking has the idea of concentrating focus, our focus upon Jesus, who is the author, that is the originator of our faith, his death on the cross, And he is the finisher. That term relates to what Jesus said. The last thing he said on the cross was, it is finished. Same Greek word here. He's the finisher. He completed the work of salvation on the cross. So all we must do is trust in him. We can't add anything to it. But he had to go through suffering. He had to go through intense physical suffering and torture before they put him on the cross which itself was something that was torturous and was incredible pain. But he was able to endure the cross, despising the shame, because he had his focus on the end result. And the end result is our salvation. The end result was the defeat of Satan. The end result was to demonstrate the love of God toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place, providing for us. And so this tells us that joy was used by the Lord Jesus Christ to face the horrible adversity of going to the cross, the physical adversity on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the spiritual adversity of being identified with our sin, so that for a three-hour period of time, he is judicially separated from the Father as he paid the price for our sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God may be found in us. And so it was, he used that it was joy that enabled him to go through that suffering. So we go through difficult times and we have to keep our eyes on the end game. That is a, this is a development of uh, learning to live in light of our own personal eternal destiny. In James 1, 2 through 4, we read, My brethren, so James is talking to believers, and he says, Count it all joy when you encounter 
uh, various adversities. Now, counting it all joy, the verb that is used there is a Greek accounting term. It means to sort of add things up, to consider it, to count, to evaluate whatever is going on in your life and whatever it is, you add it all up and it's joy. No matter how bad it may be right now, the end game is our eternal salvation. So we count it all joy when we encounter various adversities, but not in some mystical way, but because we know something. We've been taught the word, so we understand the role that adversity plays in our lives, the testing plays in our lives. And so we, because we know that, we know that we can, in, as Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, we can endure whatever we're facing in this life because of the joy set before us. So we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So we're able to endure, which means to hang in there and obey the Lord despite ways that we could escape it. Some people use drugs to escape it. Some people use alcohol to escape it. Some people use pleasure to escape it. Some people use work to escape it. People use all kinds of things. Uh, as a way of escaping uh, whatever adversities they may face. But we are to endure it. We're to hang in there biblically and handle it the way God says. Because then, verse 4, endurance has its maturing work that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8 says, whom you have not seen, you love. See, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have not seen. So that's talking about our occupation with Christ, as we covered the last couple of lessons. Whom you have, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with inexpressible and full, with, uh, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Isn't that great? It connects the dots for us that we are able to have joy inexpressible in relation to our focus on the Lord. So we see how these skills are are interrelated. And then the passage I've already talked about, the fruit of the Spirit, is joy. These are the key passages. So number four, number four, what we see is that there's a paradox here in understanding the words that are used, uh, joy and happiness, rejoicing. And in some passages, these words speak of a mindset. They speak of a mental attitude. They are devoid of emotion. But in other passages, they clearly do include an emotional element. But in all of these various passages... It's clear that the idea of joy is a mental attitude. For an example, an emotion cannot be commanded. If you have just uh, experienced, for example, the death of a loved one, and I command you to be joyful, you're going to look at me like I'm crazy, unless you understand the word that that we'll see in a minute, when you can be both joyful and sorrowful at the same time. But it's a mental attitude. So Jesus says in Matthew five eleven and 12, Blessed are you 
And that has the idea of, of being happy in the sense of stability, not in the sense of, of, of feeling uh, happiness. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. See, Jesus is saying even in the midst of persecution and uh, hateful opposition, to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. So this goes beyond just a mental attitude, but it's applying that mental attitude in terms of an overt expression of joy. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, Another passage that would deal with this is where Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He's going to repeat this in Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. This is moving beyond uh, the basic idea of simply uh, a joyful mental attitude. It is more of an overt expression. Same thing in First Thessalonians five sixteen, where Paul says rejoice always. So this is not only that mental attitude, but it goes uh, beyond that. And some are clearly beyond this in terms of having some sort of excitement and enthusiasm about something. For example, when uh, the angels announce the birth of the Savior to the shepherds, uh, the angel says, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, where they were so excited after the angels uh, disappeared, they they said, let's go into Bethlehem and see what this angel told us. Find out about this. They were excited. They were enthusiastic. They were, they were thrilled with the announcement. In Luke 10, 10 17, after Jesus had set, set, sent 70 disciples out to um, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, when they returned, they're excited. They've seen an impact of their message, and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. There's an enthusiasm and excitement there. Uh, Luke 24, 52, and they worshiped him, that is, the resurrected Jesus, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. See, in John, Jesus said, you're going to have a time of sadness and then you will see me again and you will have great joy. That was an enthusiastic response, an excitement. So it's not limited to just a mental attitude, although that's at the core of it. A mental attitude where you are applying what Scripture says about counting it all joy may or may not be expressed in some sort of overt enthusiasm and excitement. There's nothing wrong with expressing it that way, but it's not the core. The core has to be that mental attitude of stability. In Acts 12, 14, it's a wonderful story. I don't have time to tell. But Peter has been arrested. Uh, James has, uh, uh, the brother of John, has been martyred already, and Peter was then thrown in jail, and so the believers were afraid that he would be killed also. They're there having a prayer meeting. And while they're having a prayer meeting, God answered the prayer, and Peter's released from prison by an angel, and he goes to the home of John Mark where the they were meeting, 
uh, which was very likely just outside of the um, uh, of the what is now referred to as the Zion Gate uh, in the um, walls around Jerusalem. And he knocks on the door, and the servant girl goes to answer the door, and she says, well, who is it? And he says, Peter. And she gets so excited, she doesn't open the door. She just runs back to tell everybody. That's what this is talking about. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Now, these words are all the same. So you have some context where it's clear that it's talking about mental attitude and others where there's more than just a mental attitude of joy. It is expressed in some sort of overt uh, excitement and enthusiasm. Now, a fifth point that I have is that in other point, in other passages, joy is described in terms of having degrees of joy. We grow, just like we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We grow in our capacity for joy. In John fifteen eleven, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. That idea of being made full is the idea of being brought to fullness. So it indicates there's a growth in the capacity for, for joy as we mature in, in, as believers, because that's what's produced by God the Holy Spirit is a fruit of the Spirit. John sixteen twenty four, he says the same thing. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full, that it may be brought to completion. Philippians 2, 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So it looks to me like I must have misnumbered something. I think I misnumbered that last point. The fifth point um, is, uh, actually in my notes I did the same thing. So we'll call this a six. Um, This is, uh, we'll correct the numbers as we go along. This is the definition. The scriptures use a number of words to express the ideas we associate with happiness. Words for blessed include this idea of happiness uh, that the believer has in relation to positive ways that God has provided for us as individuals. Other words express the idea of a stable mental attitude resulting from trusting God in the midst of difficult or even horrific circumstances. It's a very positive thing, but it may not make you feel like you're all excited inside, but you're stable And that is seen in different passages. In some cases, we see that sorrow and joy may coexist. Sometimes we think sorrow and joy are opposites. We can't have one and not the other, but but sometimes we do. Um, Jesus says to the disciples in John 16, 20 and 22, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. He's talking about what happens at the crucifixion. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Now, you see there it's presented as your sorrow will be turned into joy. But Jesus had joy that was immutable. It never changed. 
Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So that his joy never diminished because he was without sin. So he understood the plan of God. That didn't mean that he did not feel distress and grief. In Matthew 26, 37, and 38, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Lord as he is about to be arrested and taken to uh, <clears throat> through six trials. We read, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now, a lot of people don't pay enough attention to this. There are three different Greek words that are used here. The first, sorrowful, is lupeo, which means to be grieved or sad to the point of distress. The second word translated deeply distress is the second word from the, in the, at the bottom, ademaneo, which has to do with something that weighs heavily on you. And then in verse 38, he says to them, my soul is perilupas is exceedingly sorrowful. See, sometimes Christians get the idea, I shouldn't ever grieve or I shouldn't be sorrowful or I shouldn't feel weighed down by the issues of life. Well, here's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is weighed down by the fact that he is what is about to happen to him in terms of the trials, in terms of the beatings and torture, and in terms ultimately of the fact that God the Father is going to impute to him the sins of the world and all of the all of the pain that that will bring for him. And so he is exceedingly sorrowful. But has he lost his perfect joy? Not at all. If you say, well, it looks like he did, then you've got a problem, a heretical problem, because you don't understand uh, that Jesus is 100% undiminished deity as well as true sinless humanity. So he's not sinning because sin occurs when you grieve, you're sorrowful, and you act in the wrong way as a result of that. And he keeps his focus upon the Lord. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So he doesn't let the fact that he is uh, discouraged or depressed or distressed over what may come uh, cause him to uh, have either mental attitude sins or overt sins. He remained uh, sinless. And this is important for people to understand this because too often people get the idea that if I'm a Christian, I've always got to be bouncy and joyful and happy. And if I feel down, if I feel distressed or I'm grieving over something that somehow uh, that's not right for me as a Christian, well, you can have sorrow and grieve, but not like those who have no hope, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians um, 4.18. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And so the same thing was true of our Lord. He grieved, but he did not sin. In Acts 13.15, we're told that these that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an interesting passage. The word for filled is not the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.18. This is not talking about being filled uh, by means of the Spirit, which is the phraseology you have there. But the way we translate 
prepositions in English, it gets confusing. Sometimes we talk, oh, I am filled with the Spirit. That indicates content. It can also indicate means, but prepositions are funny things. And this, it's more precise in the Greek because you have a genitive here uh, of um, the Spirit. Uh, We're full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit. Whereas in Ephesians 5.18, it's completely different. It is the preposition in, and it is used with the dative. Uh, that has a different meaning. So don't confuse them. This causes a lot of people to think, they, they read it and they think this is all talking about the same thing, but it's not, different, even a different word for filled. And this is simply a word that is describing their, their spiritual maturity. So this is six, so this actuality, this is seven. So just get that uh, corrected in your notes. In many passages, we learn that sorrow coexists with joy. And at the same time, a person may have inner peace and tranquility and contentment, but at the same time experience emotional turmoil, sorrow, or grief. We have to use our spiritual skill of inner happiness to handle the situation, that we have joy because Christ has given us his joy, and it's also a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Seventh, to look at James 1, 3 through 5, we read, My brethren, think about your trials with joy when you fall into various forms of adversity. Now, the issue is we all fall into all kinds of testing, difficulties, challenges, and those challenges can be challenges of, of blessing, Tests of prosperity. Most people fail the prosperity test, and they hopefully can can apply a little bit and pass the adversity test. But we will fall into them. The idea in the Greek is as you just go through the day, you're going to have these things happen to you. And you can have joy. You can count it joy or think about it with reference to joy because you know God's in control and God's using that to test you to see if you'll apply what you've been learning in church and Bible class so that you can have joy in the midst of the adversity. And if you pass the test and you endure, then what happens? You're growing. You are maturing. This same kind of thing is what is said in Romans 5, 3 through 5. As we have to think about adversity in terms of this is God giving us an opportunity to apply the word to faith rest drill, to claim promises, to uh, trust in God, to use various other um, spiritual skills depending on what they are. And the process is described by Paul in Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says, and not only that, but we also glory in trouble. We don't just count it all joy, we glory in it. Oh boy, how many people look at difficulties that they're going to face during the day and just say, I'm just going to glory in all of this. Bring it on. We glory in trouble knowing that the adversity produces endurance. See, once again, it comes back to knowing something, not feeling something. We know something. We understand what God's doing. He's allowing us to go into and through this situation and to claim promises, to trust him so that our we can grow spiritually and develop endurance. That's what he says. Knowing that adversity produces endurance, 
endurance, character, and character hope. Hope relates to that personal sense of our eternal destiny, which connects to joy. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. That is, the love from God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So that takes us to the next point, nine, foundational joy. Or this is, I think this is, uh, did I get my numbering off here? So we have two fives, right? Yeah. So this is, six was definition. Seven is in many passages. Eight is James 1, 3 through 5. Nine is Romans 5, 3 through 5. And this is 10. Foundational joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. And it's not based on circumstances. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on the people in your life who may be just horrible to you. So we have to focus on absolute truth in our relationship with the Lord because some days people are going to like us and the next day they're not going to like us. If you don't believe that, just be a pastor for a week. Some days you've got it, some days you don't. So we can't base our joy on anything that changes because if we base our joy on anything in this life, on people, on events, on circumstances, on our own emotions, then we're going to have problems because those four things are all fluid. They're all mutable. They change day in and day out. If we're going to have stability in our joy, it has to be based on something that doesn't move something that doesn't change. It's got to be based on the immovable uh, love of God for our lives and that that never changes. It's got to be uh, based on the Lord Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter what we do, his love never increases or diminishes. Even when we sin, he deals with us out of his love. So, we can have joy no matter what the circumstances are. Second Corinthians 7, 4, Paul said, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Notice he doesn't say in all the good things that are happening. And in uh, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 2, he says that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, he's talking about the Philippians here, by the way, the Macedonians, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality, that is, their generosity in giving to support him. Tenth, we see that as a sort of the beginning of the conclusion that as a spiritual skill, we choose this. It's our volition. It's part of our volitional responsibility, the first divine institution. We have a situation and we have to choose how we are going to respond to that circumstance, to that situation. Are we going to believe God's word and trust in him and uh, realize the joy that he has for us, and on the basis of that, maintain a relaxed mental attitude and stability, or are we going to just uh, 
fall apart and get all emotional and sad and discouraged and depressed and angry and try to handle it on our own uh, flesh. Paul says in Philippians 4.10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. So apparently there was a time when their financial support backed off, but it has been restored. And he says, I rejoice that it has flourished again. Uh, though you did care, you lacked opportunity. See, they, they, their attitude toward Paul hadn't changed. They just didn't have the opportunity to, to financially help him. And then he says, not that I speak in regard to need. I'm not, I'm not talking to you about how much I need because Paul has come to understand that in whatever state he's in, whether God has provided for him in abundance or in a lack, he says, whether I am uh, abased in verse 12, I, and I know how to abound. I, I've been without and I've had plenty. And then he goes on to say, everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. And he has joy in either circumstance. He has learned that. It's a process of spiritual growth. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things. Now, see, we can't take that verse out of context. You know, when I learned this promise when I was a kid, I thought, well, that, get, that means I ought to be able to get 100 on a test at school. That's a wrong application. That's not what Paul's talking about. When he says, I can do all things, he says, I can handle any situation, having an abundance or having nothing. I'm going to be stable because I have the joy of the Lord, and it is Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then in the 11th point, as we wrap this up, this is what's characteristic of a worthy walk, a worthy Christian life. Colossians 1.10, Paul says to the Colossians, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all might according to the, his glorious power for all patience or endurance and long-suffering with joy. Notice, joy accompanies that. He's walking by the Holy Spirit. This is what characterizes a worthy walk. Now see, that takes us right back to our passage in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.17, which set up the context for our study in this last part of Ephesians, Paul said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk, you should no longer live your life as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You shouldn't think the way they think. You shouldn't have the values that they have. You shouldn't talk like them. There's nothing in the lifestyle of an unbelieving Gentile that should be characteristic of you as a believer. We are to walk worthy of the Lord. And so this takes us back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 4. And as we come to this passage next week, in Ephesians 4.25 through 5.18, there are at least 25 commands to believers. Now what we're going to see is that every one of those relates in one way to these 10 spiritual skills. 
So we've set the stage so we can develop this and see it as it is laid out in the scriptures. So we will come back uh, next time and get back into our study of Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 25 and following with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we just thank you so much that you have provided all of this for us. You've given us these spiritual skills, and you have taught us in many different ways how to utilize these skills uh, throughout the Scriptures. We need to read the Word. We need to internalize your Word. We need to understand how to practice uh, these things when we encounter various trials. And that's exactly what we see from Romans 5 and James 1 is that we are to count it joy, we are to exalt in this because it's the way in which you teach us how you sustain us and enables us to grow and mature as believers. Father, we pray for anyone here today, anyone who may be listening to this lesson online, that they might realize that your grace is not purchased, your grace is not earned or worked for, your grace is freely given to us. And your salvation grace is given to us in that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place. He bore in his own body on the tree the penalty for our sin, the scripture says, so that he who knew no sin, absolute perfection, was made sin for us. That is, our sin was imputed to him so that he could bear the penalty for us. And in doing so, he paid the price in full. So all that is necessary is for us to accept that. It's a free gift to believe in him, to trust in him alone, and we have everlasting life. Father, we also pray for our nation at this time as we recognize our birthday this week on July 4th, recognizing that uh, those men who signed the Declaration of Independence and later the men who gave us our Constitution were men who may not have all been believers, but they were those who thought within the framework of a Judeo-Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. And they understood that only on that basis could we have true liberty and true freedom. Only on that basis could we have real prosperity in this fallen world. And so, Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for the leaders. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2 Uh, Verses 1 and 2 says that we are to pray for all men, but especially those who are our leaders, uh, that we, we may live our lives in peace and tranquility so that we can fulfill the mission that you have given us without being distracted by the vagaries of human government. So, Father, we pray for our nation. We pray that you would raise up men and women of the Scriptures who know how to uh lead and to apply your word to the many complex issues facing us in modern life. And we pray that you would restrain the evil that many of our legislatures seek to do as they uh, constantly come up with legislation that has Christianity as its target. So we pray that you might raise up these godly leaders for us. But above all, we pray that we might be faithful and shine forth as lights in the midst of this wicked and corrupt, crooked, perverse generation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.